0: 1 Kings chapter 6, we read, we went through verses, verse 13 last week. We were talking about how he started building the temple in the fourth year of his reign. Uh, we talked about how it was a little bit smaller than the tabernacle and how it didn't follow the same pattern as the tabernacle. So we're going to be looking at verse 14 as we get started. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He built the walls of the house with the... Within with boards of cedar and with both the floor and the house and the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood. And he covered the floor of the house with the planks of fir. And he built 20 cubits on the side of the house. Both the floor and the walls and, and boards of cedar. He even built them to, for it within. Even for the oracle. Even to the most holy place. And the house that is the temple before it was 40 cubits long. And the cedar of the house was was carved with knobs and with flowers, and all the cedar, there was no stone seen. And the oracle he prepared in the house within, and it was set with the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And the oracle in the forepart was 20 cubits in length, and 20 cubits in breadth, and 20 cubits in height. Therefore he overlaid it with pure gold, and covered the altar with which was of cedar, So Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold and he made a partition by the chains of the gold before the oracle oracle, and he laid it with gold and the whole house overlaid with gold until he had finished all the house. Also the whole altar that was by the oracle he overlaid with gold. So we're going to stop there because we talked about how he's building this house. In the original tabernacle in Mount Sinai when God said... For them to build the place of worship, they built a tent, and it was very ornate, uh, well-designed tent, with great pictures. And we're not going to go into all of that again with all the pictures that were involved with it. Uh, we taught it in in, the, in Exodus, so if you go back into the website, you can hear those. But here Solomon builds a house, and it says when he had finished it, they started with wood uh, with stone. He then covered the stone with cedar trees, uh, with cedar wood, it says. And then on top of that, he puts gold. <laughs> All right. And in his temple, everything in the temple of Solomon was covered with gold. The floors, the walls, the roof, everything. You did not First, you didn't see the stones because he covered them with cedar. And then he covered the cedar with gold. <laughs> so you didn't see the cedar anymore. So this this building had very large blocks of stone then it was covered with wood and then he covered it with this cedar and it says that he built this thing and he'd finished it and he covered everything and again the whole process in the original temple was that it was very beautiful and ornate in that it had a picture in everything and here he builds a 60 cubit by 60 cubit building which is approximately 90 by ni- 90 feet by by uh, 30 feet all right so it's 90 feet long about 30 feet wide and it goes up 30 feet so it's a very tall building all right so he builds this builds this building and he carves in it what they call knobs or little curly balls and stuff all over the all over the wood and uh, he's going to take this wood that he's carved, and he in verse 18 says he covers all of the stone. No stone is to be seen because of the because of this. And then he goes, he, even unto the oracle, which we talked about, that means the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant is going to sit. It's where God, God's presence filled. And the priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur with the, with the blood offering for the, for the sin of the people. And if he had not properly prom, uh, confessed his sins before he went in and offered the sacrifice, he could be struck dead. And that was always a concern for that priest. It was a great honor to go into the Holy of Holies. In the scriptures, nobody ever died. But it it was something that God said, beware. Beware if you went into the temple unrighteous, you could be struck dead. Now, we do know that Abinadab and Ebihu on the very opening day of the tabernacle, didn't do things the right way, and God struck them with uh, fire from, uh, from 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 the sky and burnt them up. So because they didn't, not because they were in the Holy of Holies, but they, they did things their way. And most people think that they'd come in to worship God drunk and, and were arrogant and trying to do things their way. And God said, fine, you're doing it your way, and, and you lost your life. And they literally were burnt up. So God can be very s- severe in His judgments. And people go, well, that was, that was back then, whenever. Well, you know, he God, God still can be that way. And Ananias and Sapphira lied to, lied to the church and God killed them instantly. Not with fire, but he killed them instantly. And that was in the New Testament. The, the verse that Sarah just read, Paul said, I am afflicted to keep me from getting too proud. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon for God to do things to make us realize that he's in charge, we're not. Whatever that might be. So we keep this in mind as we go forward. God has expectations for us especially as his children, he has expectations that we are going to be obedient. And when we're not obedient, there are always consequences. And Solomon goes through lots of consequences as he goes through his life because he is not very obedient to God. He starts out on the right track. He asks God for wisdom. But he's, after that, he wasn't doing a whole lot the way God said to do it. And he's going to end up walking away from God suffering all the problems that he suffers, and all the trials and tribulations. David did the same thing. He started doing things on his own way, and God judged him. And when he had committed the, the adultery with Bathsheba, God says, the sword is never going to depart from your home, and you're going to suffer consequences. There are always consequences for sin. Now, God's grace is sufficient for us. Even when we're suffering the consequences, his grace says, you're suffering the consequences. Now I will still walk through you, with you through the consequences. But you do not get a free pass for doing evil. Right. And evil is relative. I mean, this is something that's very important. When we're first saved, or even before we're saved, we think of evil as being these awful, terrible things. The longer we walk with God, the more we realize that we're still evil. Right? I've gotten rid of all the all the things that everybody would say bad, and then I look at what God what I'm still doing, and God says, "See, that's evil. That's evil. That's evil. That's evil." And we start really starting to get kind of gets old after a while in some ways because you're going, "God, am I ever going to get there?" And the answer is no, not until I get glorified. But He keeps showing us what doesn't fit into His personality, and the closer we walk to Him the more we get to see things the way he sees them. And then we begin to realize how awful we are and turn over and say, God, crucify that, get rid of that, help me get rid of this, help me get rid of that. And people are looking at you, well, you know, they, after a while they're looking at you, well, you're, you're perfect. Don't go, oh, no, you don't even, you don't even begin to know. Yeah. I, don't know. <laughs> I don't even want to be perfect, actually. But, you know, we look at this, and, and I've said this over and over again, I look at some of the shows on TV that I used to watch, and wonder how I ever watched them. I think of the things that I used to think about and go, how did I ever think about allow those thoughts in my mind? And I'm not talking about awful, gory things. I'm just thinking that things just weren't godly. And some of that means we're hanging out with the wrong people, we're reading the wrong books, we're reading, watching the wrong shows. And when we do all of that, we will be affected. We will always be affected by what do we fill our mind with? Who do we hang out with? And so we get into God's word, we get into hanging, hanging out with God's people, and we get sharpened up by iron. We, we get people, and we irritate each other, and we rub each other the wrong as many times, and then we also can also be pointedly. God says this. We're not, you're, I don't see this going the right way, and we need people in our lives that can actually speak that clearly to us. A- I don't see what, you're not walking in the right way. And it has to be done in love. It's not something You know, there's people in church going, well, I'm just the person who points out people's flaws. I go, no, you're the orientant of the church that is trying to cause problems. Mm -hmm. If you're not saying it with love, you're not saying it right. Mm -hmm. And we need to be careful. It has to be in love. You know, it's one thing to say to somebody you're headed to hell because of your sin without Jesus and be bitter and angry about it like you're happy they're going that way or be sad and have tears in your eyes because they're headed to hell. And that has a huge difference in the impact. Same words, same truth. But the one cares that it's it's happening to you. The other is like, this is just the fact. It is what's going to happen. And we need to be in Christ loving with God's love. Jesus spoke some very hard things to people. But it was always with love and compassion. His goal was that nobody went to hell. That's God's goal is that nobody goes to hell. Now, a lot of people, and even the majority of people, are going to go to hell for rejecting Jesus Christ. But God's heart is that all would come to Him. And He doesn't want to lose anybody. So we're back at the temple here, and He he builds up this temple, and He goes up to the oracle, and the oracle is the Holy of Holies we mentioned. And the front part, and the Holy of Holies measures 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits, which is about 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. So we have this huge room of 30 feet cubed. And all that it has in it is the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of that. That's all that's in this big room. The mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. Huh? Well, whatever was in the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was a box made out of gopher wood and covered with gold. And on top of that box sat the mercy seat, which was a gold cover with angels, with cherubins, whose wings re- reached over and touched in the center of the mercy seat. Inside the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant, originally, was the pot, a pot of manna from the wandering, The rod of Aaron that budded and the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his finger. Those were inside the Ark of the Covenant. But inside the Ark, that represented God's laws and his provision. And over that was called the mercy seat. That is where God said, I sit on top of the law with mercy. But God's mercy says, you're my children. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to give you all the blessings of heaven for being in Christ. The law convinces us that we deserve punishment, and it is it has its place. We deserve punishment because of our sin. God is righteous, he is holy, and he decides because of his love for us, Jesus comes to this world, dies for our sin, the blood covers our sins, and He gives us mercy and grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. God does not give us what we deserve when we are in Christ because He says, I have mercy on you. And then on top of all that, He gives us every blessing under, un, that He has. He makes us His children. He adopts us. He, he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. He brings us and crucifies our flesh and gives us the strength to walk through Him. And He gives us all of these blessings because of who He is and how much He loves us. All because of the death of Jesus Christ and our acceptance of that death and saying, God, make, I want to make you my Lord. And He comes in and the mercy seat is that place where God's presence dwelt. God would meet the priest in the Holy of Holies. Now the good news for us when Jesus died on the cross the temple, the veil in the temple was torn in half. Why was that? God was no longer limited to the Holy of Holies where we could not go. He was now able to be seen by all because Jesus made the provision for us to have God indwelling us and get all the strength of god Sarah, Sarah read this, and I love i'm going to go back to that because I want to read the whole thing that she didn't read all of it and I'm going to read some of it she didn't read <laughs> but you but you only took five minutes five minutes of your time limit so but that's okay for such a one as I ver, uh second second chronicles twelve verse five I'm going to start at verse five the Corinthians, corinthians. For, for second corinthians. 12, starting at verse 5. For such a one as I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmity. So God, Paul is saying, I want to glory in my weakness. But though I would desire to glory, I shall, be a f- I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think that me above that which he should see me to be, or that he heareth me. So Paul is saying, I, I have things to glory in, but I don't want people to think special of me. This is something that we have to be careful of. We're not to be standing up and saying, look at me. Our tendency as human beings many times is one or the other. We are so proud we want everybody looking. Or we go way too far the other way, which is just as bad because we're saying, look at me, look how humble I am, gotcha. which is pride. <laughs> oh. Which is just about as much pride because I'm now saying, look how humble I am. So Paul is saying, I don't want people to pay attention to me. All right. And lest I should be exalted above measure with the abundance of revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted. So Paul says, Paul says, I have great Paul is really saying, I have great desire to be, be proud, and God is making sure that I don't get proud. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. Some people believe it was eye problems. Uh, Some people believe that he just was... because he'd been stoned and had suffered so bad that he had some major physical ailment. Uh, The description of him was that he wasn't a very good-looking man and had a squeaky voice. He was not somebody that people wanted to be around, but the Word of God was powerful, and people wanted to be hearing the Word. And it says, For this thing I besought the Lord three times, that he might depart, And, and God said to him, My grace is sufficient. This is important for us. When we want desperately to get out of something that God has put us in, God is usually just going to say, Be patient. My grace is sufficient. Paul. The Apostle Paul. So he's saying, God's grace. The good news is when we finally start really understanding that God's grace is sufficient, (laughs) the problems usually start disappearing, or at least my perception of the problem disappears because I'm now concentrating on God. And sometimes I'm not so sure that the problem disappears, but my attitude toward the problem disappears. And I know that it starts out more that way. It starts out more with me and my attitude toward the problem stops. But I think eventually God takes the problem away as well because it's not a problem anymore. So he doesn't need to have that test. He doesn't need your grace. He doesn't need to be dumping anything on you because you are so resting in God. How do we want to have victory? We rest in God and let his victory, his grace satisfy. Is it easy? No. Is it easy? Yes. It is both. It's easy because all I've got to do is surrender and rest in him, but resting and stop, not not just stopping and resting in Him is not easy. The answer is easy: just stop and surrender. Doing it is not as easy, because our flesh gets involved, and we'll hear we'll hear ourselves saying, "Well, what what do I got to do in this part? What have I got? You know, what, what what is my part in this? Nothing. Your part is to just surrender and stop." And you've all heard me say, you know, when people say, well, I'm trying hard to live the Christian life, I will tell people, quit trying. Mm-hmm. Let God crucify your flesh. Let him live through you. Draw close to him, and as you draw close to him, he will change you. Yes, you know, the, there's an adage out there, birds of a feather flock together and you become like who you, like who you hang out with. If I'm hanging out with God, I'm going to become like God. Will I be perfect? Never. I'll never become perfect in this lifetime, but I can become more like him. I can become more loving. I can become more merciful. I can become more kind and forgiving and show more love by drawing closer to him. He makes me like him. The way to victory with God is to just stop and let him change you. The Holy Spirit in Develops us and comes into us, and He changes us to be like Him. All right. Now it doesn't mean I don't I go out and purposely try to sin and all that, but I don't also sit there and try to struggle. You know, what do I do now? What do I do now? What do I do now? You know, during the seventies and eighties, there was a big movement of WWJD. What would Jesus do? It was a great movement. It was a great idea. What would Jesus do? But if you had to think about what would Jesus do after every decision. You weren't close enough to him to be living the right way. The closer you drew to him, the more you started acting the way Jesus would act. But if I'm sitting there filling my mind with all the garbage on television and bad books and bad thoughts, I am not going to become like Jesus. If I'm spending time in God's Word, listening to godly music, watching godly shows, being with godly people, I am going to become more like Him, and. Become more naturally like him, we were created to be perfect, but Adam and Eve sinned and brought and brought destruction into this world. so now we have a sin nature that wants to fight godliness. You know, and we all have a really big problem. We have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust and the pride of life. Satan does not even have to come around to get us to sin. We will sin without him. We will sin without being tempted because our eyes say, "Wow, I want." It doesn't matter what it is you want. God says, "Your eyes will say, I want.' Your flesh wants. <laughs> your flesh wants whatever it might be." I'm not, I'm not even going to go into. I'm not even going to go into all the things your flesh can want. It's a sin flaw. Yeah, it's. It's not a design flaw. It's a sin flaw. But because of our lusts and our pride of our, and then we have our pride of life. How many times do we get in trouble because of pride? This person didn't do what I wanted them to do. They didn't speak to me the way I wanted them to speak. They didn't, they didn't say what I wanted them to say. The pride of life gets us in trouble so often. You know, we have a problem with what we see in our desires. We have the fleshly desires that we want to use inordinately. I mean, there's nothing wrong with eating. But if you're a glutton, there's a problem. Right? There's no problem with sex inside inside of marriage, but if we go outside of marriage to fill that appetite, it's wrong. And it goes all the way down the path. God never says that somebody can't drink, but somebody who drinks to excess is a drunk, and that's a problem. That is the one thing he says, don't do. All right? Now, many people can't drink without going to excess, so they shouldn't be drinking at all. But, you know, each one of these things are things that the, that the body can even need. You know, we need to eat. Okay? Do we, need, do, do we need to eat all the time? No. Do we need to eat until we can't walk anymore at a, at a meal? No. But, you know, these are the things that happen. If we do things in moderation the way God has designed them and properly the way God says to, they're not a problem. But because of our sin nature... We take the lusts of the, the desires of the flesh and go too far. And then we have the lust of the eyes. You know, all the things that we want. You know, and it leads to envy. It leads to greed. You know, I don't have as much money as that person does, so I've got a problem. I don't have as nice a, nice a property as they have. I, don't have. I don't have whatever. Okay? And then we get into the, the actual, the lustful thoughts that go along with things as well. So we have all of that. And then Pride they will take us down. Paul is saying all of this that God is given him a thorn to keep him humble. God uses the battles that we have to grow us and there are script you know the, my, my saying up there is a beautiful one I heard last month you have to be in the battle to overcome all right we cannot win a battle if we're not in the battle and you know he, he went on and it was a great picture you know, uh, sport, all sports teams on the very first day of the season are, are zero and zero. They're undefeated. They're also unvictorious. <laughs> they have not been tried. God knows that we need to be tried. The only way to get through the trials is to turn to him and say, God, you are my victory. Without you, I can do Nothing. And that's what Paul says, that without God, we can do nothing. And we need to really fully understand that. You know, and sometimes we get into this habit of thinking, well, you know, I can do this. I, I've been victorious before. I can get over this, victor- this problem without God. You know, if you get to that point, you're in trouble. When I get to that point, I'm in trouble. And I get there in various areas in my life. I get there every once in a while and say, I can do this. God, I don't need, I don't need you for this problem. I fall flat on my face. I get to have consequences. I get to have to confess that I screwed up. And God, I need you. And this is where God puts us through these trials. The trials are designed to show us that we need God. Always. Every bit of our day, we need God. And at the moment we don't think that we don't need God in some area of our life, we're in trouble. We may not fall that very day, but we're going to fall. The day when I say, God, I don't need you. I don't need you because. And I've shared with you one of the greatest things. When I was a teenager and somebody had told me I would, there would be a time when I didn't go to church, I would have laughed at them. I am going, no, there's no way that would ever happen. Early 20s, you become a workaholic, working all the time, end up not going to church for two years. You know, why? Because basically I did it in my own strength. I'm, God, I'm not going not gonna, to not gonna be going to church, and I started doing it in my own strength, and God said, fine, here you go. I'm going to set up a situation. You're going to fall in what you think is your strength. And we need to be careful because it's easy. Wherever we think we're strong is probably where we're going to fall. God, I would never do this. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Yeah. You'll, you'll find out that that'll probably be the area that you fall down on. God, I can hang out with all these guys that are doing bad things, and I would never commit what they're doing. I have no desire whatsoever to do whatever, whatever whatever your crowd is doing. And you're going to find yourself being drawn into that into that sphere because God is not number one. When He's number one, He will keep us. He will give us strength, and He will give us victory, and He'll keep us in our infirmities. He wants us to know that we are weak. And we really are weak. No matter who you're looking at And sometimes we look, well, that person, you know, I've never seen any problem with that person. You don't know them well enough to know what their problems are. And you don't know what they're, what they're, what they're capable of. God says, our infirmities are where we're strong. The weak shall be strong. The, first, the last shall be first. God turns things around on his ears and says, you think these are important? This is what I think is important. Just be a follower of God. Trust in Him. And learn to surrender. Learn to surrender to God. I tell people, getting out of problems is really easy. You surrender to God. Now, having said that, it's also very hard to surrender to God. We do not like to surrender. You might think we are and want to, but when we really get to it, we're like, uh uh-uh. Yeah. Well, surrendering has a problem. It means I was too weak to get through it. And our pride kicks up and says, no, I can't. I can't surrender. I should be able to do this. The lie of Satan is we should be able to do it. The lie of Satan at the very first sin was God knows that you, the day you eat of this fruit you will be like him. Not dependent on him, you will be like him, which means strong and able to get through. The same problem we have to this day Why do we not surrender to God? Our pride gets in the way. If I surrender to God, that means I'm weak. God says, absolutely. God, if I surrender, that means I couldn't get through it. And God says, absolutely. The hardest thing for us to do, do, though, is to surrender and give in to God and say, this is what I need. When you witness to people, so often they'll tell them "This, this gospel message is real simple we're sinners, we deserve punishment. Turn to God and, and accept his sacrifice. Inevitably, when I've given that message to people, I go, well, it's too simple. I go, yeah, it's so simple you're not going to do it because it, it violates your pride. <laughs> it is simple. It really is simple. But because it goes against our pride, we tend to push away from it. Uh, nope, can't do that. I have, to, I have to have some part in this salvation, God. <laughs> you know, and God says, No. I did it. Jesus had to come to this earth because we could not have a part in our salvation. We could not pay the debt that, that we owed God. So Jesus came and paid it for us and when we surrender to him and get rid of our pride, he says, this, I will make you my child and I will give you the strength to get through it. And it's tough. Our entire life is going to be spent learning to surrender. And when we think we've learned to surrender, he'll give us another area to learn to surrender in. And then he'll give us another area to learn to surrender in. And then he'll show us we haven't surrendered enough in another area that we thought we were really good in. And say, I don't want you to surrender even more. You know, quit, you know, quit just coming out with your hands. You know, don't keep, you know, stand there with your hands up. Come out of the building with your hands up. And we're sitting there, I've surrendered. I've surrendered. I'm done. And God says, no, Come out. <laughs> come out. And he, does, and he does that. He takes our first steps. He will take our first steps and says, okay, you've, done a good, you start, you've got a good start. And then he'll push for the next start and the next start and the next place. He does recognize that we are sinners and that we are hesitant to give up our pride. And he will work on bringing us and saying, here's the next part for you to work on. Here's the next part for you to work on. And the closer we draw to him, the more we see how awful our sin is. And this is where it really gets interesting because when we first get saved, we're thinking about our alcohol, our temper, our, whatever our problems are. We're thinking of those really big problems. You start walking with God for, for a couple of decades and all of a sudden you're going, wow, I had a really bad thought. Didn't act on it, but I was really angry there and I shouldn't, didn't really have a reason to be angry. And we start realizing that's just as bad as back, back when I used to act it out. You know, when I, when I used to beat the person up instead of just have the thought. You know, and you start realizing, wow, God is just as, as heartbroken when I have the thought as when I acted it out. Now, would we have ever been able to change if He's tried to say, okay, while you're still acting out, I'm, I'm going to deal with your thoughts? We weren't ready to deal with those we were still having trouble with the actions. And God is saying, as we grow with him, he starts saying, okay, let's start looking at the motive. Why did you do what you did? You know, for, for us, we're, we're just happy we go to church. You know, you know, and then we can go, hey, I, I, I went to church every, every day, every, every week last month I went to church. And we're happy about it. I went to church every time the doors were open. Good starting place. Good place to start. Being with God's people is going to be a helpful thing. But if I'm going there just so I can say I went to church, that's not a good reason to go to church. I love being with God's people. I love it. I can't think of anything I'd rather be is with God's people, being able to minister with God's people and share with God's people and be loved by God's people and love them. Mm -hmm. Nothing else I can picture in my mind. My goal of going to church, my goal is not do I go to church or not. It's like, I better be in the hospital, which is the only day that I've missed outside of a vacation in this church in the last eight years was when I was in the hospital. Because my goal when I wake up is, if it's Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday night, I'm going to church. I'm going to church. Am I growing with God's people? What is Why that? am I going? You know, Can we just skip reading God's word and not have a problem with it? Or do we really have to read it every day because I need it? You know, and it's important. Our, our actions with God, prayer, reading the Bible, witnessing, coming to church, all are good things, but it really depends on why we're doing it. Am I doing it to try to, to prove something or to make people think I'm a good person or maybe even make God try to think I'm a good person? Or am I doing it because I need it? I need to come to church and be with God's people. I need to get into his word. I need to pray. You know, and he's working on me in certain, certain areas and saying, you need, more, you need more of this, you need more of this, and will continue to until the day that I die or am raptured and he glorifies me. And the same for each one of you. That if you're his child, he's working with you. And he may be taking you from a very low starting place. God does not expect the baby to be running a marathon. All right, too many times we expect ourselves to be running the marathon, you know, and God's saying, No, you're still a child, I don't expect you to be running the marathon, I don't expect you to be out there doing the massive weightlifting. And we have expectations on ourselves sometimes that are not God's, you know, we think about this. Now, the sad thing is when somebody's been a Christian for a long time and is still not walking, not, not, not feeding themselves, they're, they're not even wanting the milk of the word. I, I, I talk about some people, they don't even want the milk of the word of God, they want watered down milk. So, so watered down that they're drinking water, they're not even getting anything to satisfy themselves. And there is a place for that, maybe, but not when you've been walking with God for years and decades. You should be at that point, as Paul said to Timothy, you're training people up that can actually train other people. Our goal is to be able to teach others. Now, does that mean I expect somebody, the minute they get saved, to go out and start teaching people? Absolutely not. I want people to learn how to handle the Word of God and to be able to to read and understand God's Word, but there has to be a point where people start stepping out and doing more to serve God. And um, the hope is that you'll do it on your own, but we're going to try to push it back as now. We're going to try to push people into doing things. And say, what are you doing? What are you doing for God? Solomon builds a temple. Mostly because his dad wanted it built. <laughs> right. I think he's honored to build it. But his dad is the one that made the plans. His dad is the one that put billions of dollars, the equivalent of billions of dollars in, in materials together. He handed it all to Solomon and said, okay, God says you get to build this. You know, I don't know whether Solomon wanted to or not, but he's going to. It took him four years into his kingdom to do this. And he says he overlaid everything in gold. Solomon had lots of gold in his kingdom. Right? He had lots of silver. Later on, we're going to read a verse that says that silver was as dust in, the, in Jerusalem in those days, which means it was worthless. There was so much silver in Jerusalem that silver had no value. Gold wasn't far behind. And he's using it to 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 cover everything in the temple. So it wasn't too far beyond that. He makes gold shields, he makes gold, he puts gold everywhere in his kingdom. Gold wasn't of great value to him. You know, it was just it it was overabundant, and he says, it's not that big a deal to me. Here, we'll just make everything out of gold. And you know, we think about that kind of funny. You know, uh, think about that much gold. (laughs) we we would never think about making gold shields and gold armor and gold doors and gold window you know window frames and you know and yet everything he had was made out of gold it was almost almost just a almost as bad as ceramic here here's your ceramic cup you know, here here's your gold cup that was that was that was Solomon's you know, you know, here just take, take, some, take some gold take some gold it's nothing and that is his attitude toward this. Now he know, he understands it's precious. He's going to cover the entire tavern, uh, temple with it, but it was not that great a deal to him. I don't know. I don't know what else he could have covered it with, because gold gold is a precious precious thing, and the ark is covered in gold. The uh, incense burner is covered with gold. The the uh, menorah is covered with gold. The Altar of showbread is covered with gold. I mean, everything's covered with gold originally. But in Solomon's temper, he covers the floor, the the walls, and everything else. Everything, everything. Uh, It it is gold. Uh, This room, if you think about this room when you walked into it, it had to be uh, very hard on the eyes. Everything is gold. Your walls, floor, ceiling, and all the furniture is Gold. Uh, It would be very hard. I can't imagine what that room would have really looked like. And if it was polished gold, it would be even worse. Because what little light you did have from the menorah and from the windows was being reflected all over the place. It was all being reflected all over the place. It would have been very hard to walk in. And uh, I don't know. It's supposed to be one of the greatest wonders, but I I can't really picture walking into a room of nothing but gold. Where the furniture is gold, the walls are gold, the floors are gold, the roof is gold, everything's gold, <laughs> would be awfully hard. He laid everything out. He's ornately designed on this. Verse 22, uh, 23. And within the oracle, the holy of holies, he made two cherubim of, of olive tree, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was... was was the one wing of the cherub and five cubits on the other wing of the cherub. From the uttermost part of the one wing to the uttermost part of the other were ten cubits. And the other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubim were of one measure and one size. The height of the cherubim was ten cubits and so was the other. So he's making cherubim or angels. So he's making a ten foot tall cherubim with a 10-foot wingspan. So it says later on in here that the wings touched from one wall to the other, and they touched each other over the center of the ark. It must have been very interesting in in picture. Uh, I don't know how well it stood out from the rest of the gold. (laughs) Now note, though, in this particular one, he didn't start with cedar like the other stuff, or even fir trees. He started out with an olive tree. Olive, the olive tree represents Israel. And then, so he's having the olive tree representing Israel covered by deity with gold covering the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. This one actually has some picture in it that is kind of interesting. Yeah. Because Israel is represented by the olive tree in the, in the holy of holy place. Covered by the deity of Christ. The deity of God. Brought in one beautiful picture. The rest of it, he's lost all the other pictures, but this one he's got the picture of. He's got Israel represented in the Holy of Holies in the olive tree, covered with God's righteousness, standing on the mercy seat, getting what they don't deserve. You know, what a beautiful picture that one is. The cedar, I don't know what all that is all about. He just had cedar. He likes cedar, apparently. But here we see... 20 foot the two cherubim end up with a 20-foot wingspan, or 20-cubit wingspan from one wall to the other wall. So how much is yeah. about, a, about a foot and a half is a cubit. So they're 15 feet tall, 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide. And he set the cherubim within the inner house, or the holy of holies, and they stretched forth their wings of the cherubim so that the wing of one touched one wall and the wing of the other touched the other wall. And their wings... Touched one another in the midst of the house right over the the mercy seat. Their wings touched just as they were supposed to in the original design of the mercy seat. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. (laughs) And he covered all the walls of the house around about with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and great open flowers within and without. So he had people etch the gold with pictures of cherubim, palm trees, and flowers. So he's etching these into the gold. Now, remember in the cedar, he's already put in bowls and everything. So when they're covered, there's going to be some uh, relief coming out. It's not just a flat surface on those walls. This one, he's got a flat wall, and he's etching in these patterns into it. Patterns of the cherubim, patterns of the the, uh, palm trees and flowers. And he did it within and without, so both sides of the wall. So he's got engravings all over it. I don't know how deep those engravings went. I don't know how, how much they would have broken up the wall. I'm, I mean, I'm sure that's what they did. And I'm sure that these engravings were not just little etchings. They were probably literally carved into the gold on the wall, which now would make it a little, little more pretty. It's not just a solid gold wall. It's Here's a palm tree and a cherubim and all these things actually carved into the wall which would give it pattern. He's trying to make it pretty. He's trying to make it... We're talking about some of these places nobody's going to see. The Holy of Holies nobody sees, other than God and the, and the high priest once a year. Even the holy place isn't going to be seen by very many people. It's seen by the priests as they come in and light the, keep the menorah filled and put the showbread on and, keep, and light the altar of incense. The people never see this. The priests get to see this. Now on the outside part, because it says within and without... They're going to get to see the exterior of the building all carved and, and ornate and pretty. Uh, so yes, he's doing it to make... He is doing it with the right attitude to, to glorify God. In the, in the Middle Ages, great cathedrals were built for, to glorify God, supposedly. And that's what they said. They were being built so that God would be glorified because of the in, ornate design of the building. Now in Christianity we have gone back and forth between extreme austerity. You don't want any any fanciness at all because God is, you know, we don't want to be using God's money to do anything. And then to the other extreme of we want to show God our our, our total love and abundance and show him show show him through great wealth and, and honor what we have. And then we go go back the other way and start going back to, you know, very ornate uh, non ornate. Uh, for a long time in America we have been in the non ornate no stone no no stained glass windows no no pews just you know put some chairs out there and let people let people worship god wasn't so long ago though that we were building cathedrals with stained glass windows and and carved pews and all these and all these beauty and the goal was to not say look how much we have but god you are worth you are worth this much to us all right and we go back and forth and there's not good or bad in either one all right it's just what do we do? And both sides look down on the other. Those who, when you're in this really austere, like, well, how could you have wasted so much money on your on your building? And then when we're building for God. We look back, like, Wow, you guys cared that little for God that you didn't, you couldn't, you couldn't make a nice building. You know, both sides have their problems. Both sides have their advantage. Our goal is just worship, worship God. And this is something that is very important in our day. One of the problems in the church in America is too many people are worried about how do we worship? What songs do we sing? You know, am I being entertained when I go to church? The question is, who cares? Why am I going to church? I'm going to church to worship God. And if my focus isn't on God, then I'm there for the wrong reasons. Does that mean I can't enjoy the music and have fun with the music? No. But if I'm going there only because of the music, I'm there for the wrong reasons. And I like, I like both sides of the music. I like hymns and I like the, the contemporary music as long as it honors God and we're worshiping. You know, so the key is, are we worshiping? If it's all hymns and we're worshiping, fine. If it's all, all choruses and we're worshiping, fine. I like the mix because I, like, I grew up in the church. I grew up with hymns. so I, don't, I like the hymns. I like the power of the hymns. But I also like the choruses, some of the choruses that are being sung. But the whole point is, are we worshiping? Are we worshiping? And we're seeing churches nowadays that are building two different services, one for, the, one for those who have to have the traditional stuff and one for those who have to have, have the uh, new stuff. What are we teaching people? It's all about you. It's all about you and what you want. What we should be teaching them Quit thinking about what you want and think about what worshiping God. You know, and that's important. You know, we want to be careful. What am I saying by the way I live my life to people? Am I lifting up God? When people look at me, do they see God? Or do they see something other than God? You know, and good works can show God if it's really truly God working through you or it can say, this person's so proud, look at how good they are. And that's the hard thing about it. The same thing can mean two different things. You could be a good person serving God with all your heart and you're focused on God and you're just being good. Or you could be a good person trying to make people think that you're good, especially trying to make God think that you're good and yourself think that you're good. And one person's doing the right thing and the other one's doing the wrong thing and they're doing the same thing. They could both be going to church every time the doors are open and and singing out loud and praying and reading their Bible. One's doing because he just loves God so much that they want to worship God. And the other is saying, God, look at all the good things I'm doing for you. And God says, well, I don't care about those things. (laughs) Because you're not doing it with the right attitude, the right heart. All of it comes down to what is God doing in us and through us. Because if I'm trying to do for Him, God says, your flesh isn't going to work. You know, Isaiah says for all your righteousness is filthy rags. All the good things that we can do in God's in God's eyes doesn't mean a thing if it's done in my strength. When people go on the white throne judgment to be judged by God and be sent into hell, they are not being sent into hell because of their sin. Jesus paid for the sin. They're going to be standing at God's white throne judgment in their righteous their own righteous filthy rags. And God's gonna say, sorry, not, not good enough. Because they're gonna go, and they're gonna go up there because you witness the people and go, Well, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. You're not. <laughs> Plain and simple, you're not. I'm not, you're not, nobody, nobody is good enough to go to heaven. Because when we stand before God in our righteousness, it's rags. And God says, I don't let rags into heaven. How do we get into heaven? We accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice and say, "God, come into my life." He clothes us with His righteousness, and we stand before God in His righteousness, and He says, "Welcome. This is my perfect child. Come on in." Now we know we're not perfect. You know, technically, God knows we're not perfect, but He's covered our sin. He has covered our sins with His righteousness. And he says, "Because you have my righteousness on, you get to come in. You try to come in in your righteousness, you get rejected. And this is important for us to truly understand. When we're living our life, we're not living a life trying to say, God, look at me. Look how good I am. And, or trying to get others to look how good I am. God says, only his righteousness is going to get us by. And that's when we accept him and we say, God, come into my life and save me. And he says, fine, you are perfect. I love that God says we're perfect. Because I know I'm not perfect. I know that everybody I know is not perfect. And yet in Christ, God says we're perfect. When Satan comes along and taps us on the shoulder and reminds us about how imperfect we are, we get to go, you know what? You're absolutely right, but I'm in the righteousness of Christ. I I am perfect in God's sight. We need to be able to really understand who we are. Because when we start understanding who we are in Christ... We have strength. We have overcoming victory. We know we have problems. Now, that doesn't excuse our problems. So, when I fall, and fall flat on my face and I commit sin, it doesn't excuse my problems. God doesn't say it's okay that we sinned. He's got a consequence for it. But He says, You confess your sins, you're forgiven. And your clothed, you're your clothed in His righteousness, you're forgiven. We want to keep this in mind. Who are we in Christ? We're perfect. If you're not in Christ, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you're not in Christ, it doesn't matter. But when we're in Christ, it doesn't matter how bad we are because we're in Christ. And God says, you're forgiven. Now, if you're living a life that's always sinful and always on the bad side, then you're going to have to look and say, God, am am I really your child and do I know you? Okay? Okay. Because if we're in Christ, we're a new creation that wants to do good or wants to get better. And as I've said, we look at our life and if we're getting better each year, not perfect, not, not 100%, but we look at ourselves and saying, I can't do the things I used to do. I can't do what I used to do because God is changing me. Then you can be pretty sure that you're his child. God, you're making me, you're my child, I'm your child and you are, you are mine and, and you are changing me. If you can sin with no consciousness of sin that you're sinning and it's wrong you've got a problem. Yeah. You've got a problem because God's not apparently in you. That's between you and God but my first step is if I can sin and I don't have any, any compunction to it I don't feel it's wrong, I don't feel guilty I don't feel guilty going into it, I don't feel guilty coming out of it yeah. I don't feel convicted I'm not his child. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sin a lot. But when I get done sinning, God says, what did you do that for? Oh, because I kind of messed up. You know, It may take me a while to get to where, where I confess that. It took David after his sin with Bathsheba over a year to come back to God. You know, you know, he was definitely convicted. But he was a year before he came back to God. Because it said that God said the child would be killed. Which means you had nine months for the until the baby was born, you had an, a year or two for it to become a child, because before that's a baby. So he, he was definitely a year, up to maybe three years before without coming to God. Yet he was God's, he was still God's. Alright? Just because we are sinning and not, not responding to God does not mean we're not his child, if we're his child. It just means we're fighting against him. But, in our hearts, we should know that I'm under conviction. When I walked away from God for two years, I was under conviction the whole time. What was really bad is I witnessed a lot during that period of time, and I don't know if I witnessed more or not, but I definitely felt like a hypocrite when I was witnessing. So I would tell people they needed Jesus when I hadn't even talked to Jesus. or been praying to Him or reading His book for two years, and yet I would tell Him. So how did you put yourself back into? How did I come back? Let's end in prayer, and then I'll go with that story. (laughs) Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love for us, Lord, and care for us. We ask you to keep us, guide us, teach us what you want us to do, and, and ask you to keep us and follow us. In Jesus' name, amen.